it's controversial because when parents are told not to bed share, and of course you have to go and feed your baby somewhere in the night, what often happens is that you go and sit on the sofa and feed your baby and you fall asleep by accident. And so it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a strong suspicion that some of these infant deaths have actually been driven by, by anti-bed sharing kind of messaging because parents have felt unsafe in the bed, thought they would stay awake when they went downstairs, but actually you don't stay awake, you fall asleep anyway. And it would have been safer if they'd had the baby in the bed. You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hi, I'm Emily and you're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Today it is the new waking moon here in the Southern Hemisphere and this is episode 45. I hope you enjoyed the two-parter on salt, fat, sugar and anti-nutrients with Dr. Katrina Walsh. The next episode to come out on the 21st of October to coincide with the full waking moon is with Kimberly Seals Allures. I might have pronounced that wrong. Uh, She is the author of The Big Letdown. This is another interview by our guest host Mary Francel. I'm reading Hunt Gather Parent at the moment by Micheline Ducleff. It was suggested to me by Aishan Karaduman. She's the host of the Redefining the Good Life podcast and was also a participant in one of our 10 Questions in 10 Minutes episodes. Uh, Remember, if you've been listening along to the 10 in 10 series, thinking, you know, up your own answers, do feel free to get in touch if you're open to sharing your answers with the rest of us. Anyway, like I said, I'm reading Hunt Gather Parent and there's a couple of pages that I really enjoyed that I thought you would too, and they're also relevant to today's episode. Uh, Here we are. Uh, Much of the parenting advice out there today isn't based on scientific or medical studies, or even on traditional knowledge passed down from grandmas to mums for centuries. Instead, a big chunk of it comes from centuries-old pamphlets, often written by male doctors intended for foundling hospitals where nurses cared for dozens, even hundreds, of abandoned babies all at once. With these pamphlets, doctors were essentially trying to industrialise infant care, but their publications found another hungry audience, exhausted mums and dads. Over time, the size and scope of the doctors' pamphlets grew. Ultimately, they morphed into the advice books we have today, which are swollen descendants of terse little booklets written by 18th century doctors for the use of nurses in the foundling hospitals. Christina wrote, Techniques of handling children have not made the steady progress toward improvement that some historians of childhood assert, but instead they have always been tailored, sometimes attractively, sometimes unpleasantly, to suit the times. Take, for instance, the idea that babies need to feed on a particular schedule every two hours, as my paediatrician told me. That advice dates back at least to 1748, when Dr. William Cadogan penned an essay for the nurses at Coram's Foundling Hospital in London, a hospital that admitted nearly 100 babies each day. Clearly, the staff at Coram couldn't feed or even hug so many babies whenever they cried, or on demand, as we say. 
and so the doctor recommended four feedings a day, decreasing to two or three after three months. Initially a war doctor, William had turned paediatrics after the birth of his daughter in 1746, and he came to the paediatric field with some misogynistic views of parenting. It is with great pleasure I see at last the preservation of children become the care of men of sense. In my opinion, this business has been too long fatally left to the management of women who cannot be supposed to have a proper knowledge to fit them for the task. That was a direct quote from him. Never mind the fact that women had been fit for the task for millennia in Europe and 200,000 years elsewhere. A few decades after William published his recommendation for feeding schedules, doctors began offering up advice about baby sleep and their predilection for forming bad habits. In 1848, Dr. John Ticker Conquest completely disregarded tens of thousands of years of history and warned mothers not to rock babies to sleep, lest they become addicted to it. A rocker, he wrote, was an apparatus contrived and at one time made use of to subdue furious lunatics. Experts also started recommending that babies physically separate from mums at night and even stop nursing. Although the baby's instinctive craving for its mother's presence was recognised, it was more important to ingrain it with the convenient habit of sleeping alone in a cot, Christina wrote. And sleep training? Guess who proposed that unique technique? Why, a surgeon turned sports writer, of course, who wrote under the pseudonym Stonehenge, if babies are left to go to sleep in their cots and allowed to find out that they do not get their way by crying, they at once become reconciled and after a short time will go to bed even more readily in the cot than on the lap. Dr. John Henry Walsh wrote in his manual of domestic economy in 1857. Besides doling out advice on infant sleep, John Henry also authored several books about guns, including The Shotgun and Sporting Rifle and The Modern Sportsman's Gun and Rifle. And he lost a big chunk of his left hand one day when a gun exploded in his grasp. In the end, these doctors' advice books shifted how parents viewed children's sleep. For the first time, babies and kids no longer went to sleep when they were tired and woke up when they were rested. Instead, parents were now required to control, regulate and time children's sleep, just like they did with a turkey roasting in the oven. Suddenly, there were all these rules and requirements about sleep, which didn't exist before. Parents became the sleep police. Bedtime was now an opportunity to show who was boss, Christina wrote. Eventually, rules for sleep morphed into a moral issue. If your kids aren't sleeping at optimal times for an optimal amount each day, then not only are you a bad parent, but look out, your children are going to have problems later in life. Problems in school, problems getting a job, problems. Well, just problems, lots of problems. So anyway, I thought that was very interesting and relevant to this episode that um, Mary Francell, our guest host, recorded with Helen Ball, which you can listen to now. Hello and uh, welcome again to the Untaming Podcast. I'm uh, your occasional guest host, Mary Francell. 
I'm an IBCLC in private practice in Bellingham, Washington in the US. And um, I also blog at www.whatdobabiesneed.com. And I'm just thrilled to uh, welcome my current guest, uh, Professor Helen Ball. Professor Ball is trained in human biology and biological anthropology, obtaining her PhD at the University of Massachusetts Amherst in 1992. She established the Parent Infant Sleep Lab at Durham University in 2000, was promoted to professor in 2007, and served as head of the anthropology department from 2013 to 2016. Her research examines the sleep ecology of infants and their parents, including attitudes and practices regarding infant sleep, behavioral and physiological interactions of infants and their parents during sleep, infant sleep development, and the discordance between cultural and biological sleep needs. She conducts research in hospitals, her sleep lab, and the community, and contributes to national and international policy and practice guidelines on infant care. In 2013, she received the ESRC Award for Celebrating Impact. In 2016, Professor Ball was appointed as chair of the Scientific Committee for the Lullaby Trust. And in 2018, Durham University received the Queen's Anniversary Prize for Further and Higher Education for Helen's research and outreach work. She is a board member of the ISPID, the International Society for the Study and Prevention of Infant Deaths, an assessment board member for UNICEF UK Baby Friendly Initiative, and she directs the Durham Infancy and Sleep Center and the Baby Sleep Information Source basis on the internet, which is a fabulous resource for parents uh, looking to sleep with their babies in a safe way. Uh, last night, she has no idea how many hours of sleep she had. And for dinner last night, or for lunch, I'm sorry, this, this today, she had a ham and cheese toasted wrap. And I'm just thrilled to speak with uh, Professor Ball. Her research is so influential. And we're just, one, we're just so excited to have you here, Professor Ball. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So could you start out by telling me a little bit about your professional background um, and how you became interested in infant sleep? We've heard a little a bit of your of your um, biography, but if, is there mm -hmm. anything else you'd like to add? And how did you get this interest in particular? OK, well, this has been uh, my research focus for about 25 or so years now. Um, and before that, as uh, you mentioned, I did a PhD in primatology and um, it was not really that um, uh, surprisingly after the birth of my first daughter or while I was pregnant with my first daughter, I suppose, that I started thinking about sort of infant care practices and what I knew from anthropology being trained as a biological anthropologist and how that sort of um, didn't quite mesh with the expectations of the, the culture in which I was living, which was North America at the time. Um, and so when I got my first permanent academic job, which is the job that I've stayed in my entire career, um, pretty soon after getting to uh, Durham, I decided to switch my research from studying primates to studying mother-baby sleep, because that was that was what interested me then when I'd got my own child. And, you know, we moved to the UK um, when she was one year old on her first birthday, actually. Uh, so this was all very new and interesting and exciting to me. 
And um, when I first started talking about doing this kind of research, my colleagues would say to me, well, what do you want to study that for? Because people in England don't bed share with their babies. And I would say, are you sure about that? I said, I think they maybe do, but they just don't talk about it. So I want to find out what they do. And of course, once I started kind of like unraveling all of that, it just became more and more and more interesting. Absolutely. Um, so as an anthropologist, can you uh, explain to us what animal models and also sleep patterns in other maybe what we might call traditional cultures tell us about normal infant sleep? Yeah, so the key thing really for my research um, is to think about humans as being mammals and we give birth to mammal babies and those babies have the needs of other, you know, just like other mammals do. They, they, are, they are born expecting to be fed on their mother's milk. Um, they receive milk that is of a very particular kind of type, um, which requires babies to be fed frequently because it's low in fat and it's high in, in um, sugar. So it gives energy and energy is important for human babies for brain growth. So, you know, the brain's an expensive, energetically expensive organ and a human baby's brain grows rapidly over the course of the first year. So they need a lot of fuel for that. Um, but they don't need to be satiated for long periods because we belong to a group of primates that are known as precocial whose babies are just with them all the time. So, you know, other, other primates, babies cling to their mums. Um, other precocial mammals can get up and walk immediately after birth, but human babies can do neither of those things, yet they have the needs of precocial mammals to stay, you know, in close contact and to um, be fed frequently and to have their mother's warmth and etc. body warmth, etc. cetera. Um, so all of that informs sort of what Human babies are biologically expecting when they're born, um, yet over the last hundred years, our infant care practices have sort of diverged away from providing that for, for all sorts of reasons, some of which, you know, we probably don't fully understand. Um, and then when we look at other cultures around the world, they, of course, keep their babies with them all the time. You know, they have div fashioned devices in all sorts of ways to strap babies to mother's bodies or to, you know, be able to, to put them down right next to the mother when she's working, whatever it is that she's doing. And of course, in our society, industrialization sort of disrupted all of that because a mother couldn't take a baby into an industrialized sort of factory strapped to her body that just wasn't safe. And so she was expected to leave it behind and that that is one of the big drivers of the sort of the, the goal of creating independent infants um, from an early age is so that mums could leave them so they could go and do productive economic work. And that seemed to then extend into nighttime, even though the mothers might still be in the same space, but mm -hmm. they felt like they had to be separated at night as well. Well, I mean, this is this is part of the desire to get um babies to sleep through the night as early as possible so that you know parents could get a good night's sleep and go to work the next morning um, and also it was the era when um, richer women who could afford to pay for anesthesia in labor were moving into the hospital to give birth because that's where anesthesia was available 
And this was sort of a, you know, this was a suffragette issue. The suffragettes campaigned for um, women to be able to have uh, painless labors um, and childbirth. But of course, the kinds of anesthesia that were available, like chloroform in the early days, knocked you right out and incapacitated you for ages. So, you know, your baby had to be removed after birth because you couldn't look after it. So that was when... Um, nurseries in hospitals became established and once they'd become established then it was very hard to unestablish them because you know you needed professionals to look after the newborn babies and they needed to be in a in an infection free space and all of the rest of it and under observation and mothers couldn't possibly look after them properly so um you know it snowballs after after it's gotten started absolutely so can you discuss, I know your, your, your research that you've done is wide ranging and quite vast, um, but can you discuss maybe some you know, individual studies you've done uh, along with what you've discovered during, those, during that research? Well, if I take a sort of a chronological approach to that, um, we started off by talking to people basically to find out what they were doing with their babies at night. Um, and discovered that about half of babies in the UK spent some of their time in bed with their parents. And there were lots of reasons for that, but the most common reason was breastfeeding. Um, and it was to make nighttime breastfeeding as convenient and easy as possible. And mums who brought their babies into bed carried on breastfeeding for longer than those who didn't. So, you know, it seemed to me that there was this very strong interconnection between breastfeeding and bed sharing and therefore breastfeeding mums needed to have information about how to do this as safely as possible given that western beds you know aren't necessarily designed for babies with babies safety in mind um, and then so we went on after that to look at the way in which mums and babies and also dads and mums and babies kind of sleep together in the home environment so we did a bunch of video studies um, in parents' homes. And that was where we sort of saw this consistent um, position in which moms kind of arranged themselves and the baby, how they curl up around the baby and make this space for the baby to sleep in with their bodies. Um, so that was, uh, that was quite exciting to kind of document that. And we moved on to... Um, take our video cameras into the postnatal ward of the, the nearby big tertiary hospital and videoed first time mums immediately, um, you know, first night after birth, randomized them to receive different sleep conditions because what we were interested in was, was what does it make a difference if there is a, a small barrier between the mum and the baby at night in terms of getting breastfeeding off to a good start. Everything that I had kind of understood biologically and anthropologically suggested to me that rooming in was, of course, much better than putting a baby in a nursery separate from the mum. But I, I still wondered whether that was close enough, given what we'd seen with the bed sharing in people's homes and, you know, how mums and babies were kind of like in physical contact almost all of the night. Um, so that study was, was using video cameras to record what was going on with mums and babies who were randomly allocated to be in bed with their baby, to have a sidecar crib attached to the bed, or to have a normal bassinet next to the bed for rooming in. And what we saw was, was quite um, exciting, really. Qu exciting in one way, um, 
probably a bit sad in another way, but the normal rooming in babies had about half the breastfeeding bouts in the course of a night that the that the two groups of babies that were in close proximity had. Um, and so that, you know, that that has got all sorts of ramifications for mums and babies because um, when when babies cue and mums respond immediately, um, mums are experiencing something physiologically that they're not experiencing if the ba- if they don't notice that their baby is cueing. So you know, with every with every um, time that the mum puts the, the nipple in the baby's mouth, she's experiencing a surge of prolactin, and the more prolactin surges she experiences, the quicker she reaches the threshold when her milk starts to come in, and the, the more copious her milk production is when it starts to come in, and then the more confident she feels about being able to feed her baby. And then when we followed these mums and babies up, um, over the next several months, the ones who had had that experience was much more likely to still be breastfeeding than the ones who hadn't. So it's, you know, it's just this, this very small difference can have this huge kind of repercussion for, for feeding outcomes. So that was, you know, that was, that, that co- probably covers the first 10 years of our research. At <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's so important that because I think so many parents are so worried about their bodies, you know, being a danger to their babies. And I remember, you know, when my babies were in bed with me, I, I didn't wake up really, uh, you know, they would just kind of latch on and we would both go back to sleep very quickly. Um, and they do, you know, but people worry so much about rolling over onto their baby and, you know, suffocating their baby. Can you mm-hmm. discuss why that's just really not an issue unless there's some other influence such as alcohol or drugs or something like that? Yeah, so so the SIDS the, the SIDS and the SUDI data. So SUDI is the the um the unexpected death of a baby, and SIDS is the unexplained death of a baby. But um, so SUDI includes the accidental deaths, etc. Um, but but both groups of cases seem to happen um, predominantly these days amongst families or in situations where there is some kind of hazard, some kind of identifiable hazard in the sleeping environment. So, you know, the most common one here is parents sleeping with a baby on a sofa. Um, And that was that, that, I mean, it's, it's controversial because when parents are told not to bed share, and of course you have to go and feed your baby somewhere in the night, what often happens is that you go and sit on the sofa and feed your baby and you fall asleep by accident. And so it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a strong suspicion that some of these infant deaths have actually been driven by, by anti-bed sharing kind of messaging because parents have felt unsafe in the bed, thought they would stay awake when they went downstairs, but actually you don't stay awake, you fall asleep anyway. Um, and it would have been safer if they'd had the baby in the bed safely arranged than just falling asleep on the sofa and the baby kind of getting wedged or whatever into some kind of a crack. Um, So sofas are certainly in the UK the biggest hazard, Um, and then parents who are under the influence of something, drugs or alcohol or what have you, medication even, um, who aren't aware um, of what's happening, aren't aware of the fact that they're falling asleep or aren't aware of the, the fact that the baby's in an unsafe position or something. 
and then kind of like an order not not quite an order of magnitude below that but getting on for that way is um smoking so smoking increases the risk of bed sharing SIDS, um, not necessarily accidents, but bed sharing SIDS, um, but it's nowhere near as, as high a hazard as, um, as sofas and drugs and alcohol. Um, yes, and then beyond that, the kind of baseline risk of SIDS um, for bed sharing without those hazards is, you know, substantially lower. Absolutely. I, I think folks don't, they think about themselves as asleep, and so they're not aware of what's going on with the baby. So they think they could just roll over. But can you talk a little bit about like basically body awareness that you have while you're sleeping, mm -hmm. why that's not a concern? So when we talk to breastfeeding moms about this, they feel as though they don't ever go into very deep stages of sleep. They're always some somewhat aware of where their baby is. And one of the interesting things about uh, coding the videos that we've made is that um, breastfeeding mums arrange themselves in this curled up position. They put their baby flat on the mattress. They put their arm above the baby's head and their knees underneath the baby's feet. So they're making this space that the baby can't kind of wriggle up under the pillows or down under the covers. But because you've got your knees and your, your elbows kind of like in front of you, you can't roll yourself roll forward onto the baby. So, you know, it's quite a stable arrangement. And mothers and babies just stay in that position for the vast majority of the night. Um, so, you know, mums are not, you know, people, people look at videos of, of people sleeping as couples or as, as independent adults, and they're kind of rolling around and flinging their arms about and all sorts of things. We don't see breastfeeding moms who sleep with their babies doing that at all. The most you might do is roll onto her back and sort of stretch your arms and then get back into, you know, curled up position again. Um, so I think there is something about being a breastfeeding mom that affects your sleep and affects your awareness of your baby and it's it's difficult to explain what it is but when you've done it you definitely notice it absolutely, um, absolutely. so i think you know one of the difficulties with that is then talking to moms who aren't breastfeeding about whether or not they can have that same degree of awareness when they're asleep and we don't know whether or not they do. Some of them feel as though they do. And some of them behave in the same way as breastfeeding moms, currently breastfeeding moms. The ones who behave in the same way as currently breastfeeding moms are, in our study, were moms who had either been breastfeeding and had now stopped at the time that we videoed them, or they had breastfed a previous child but weren't breastfeeding this one. But they'd got that relationship with their baby. Um, the mums who had never ever breastfed, their sleep was a bit more, their sleep kind of arrangements with their baby were more variable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they put the babies between the pillows or on the pillow at face height. And sometimes they turned, the, turned away. Um, and it's not clear to us. And we've never been able to get funding to do a study for it but it's not clear to us whether you could teach a formula feeding. If you, if you explained it to her and raised her awareness of it, could she then do it 
or does she just have a different kind of sleep because she hasn't got breastfeeding hormones in her body? That's really, you know, that's one of those questions that I can't answer, but I've always wondered about. Absolutely. Although, you know, there are some precautions that folks can take, you know, for example, if they have risk factors such as not um, breastfeeding or, um, you know, perhaps being under the influence of alcohol or drugs, um, you know, that, uh, or for example, taking a medication that makes mm -hmm. them sleep more deeply, they can uh, have a, a separate space right next to the baby. But I, you know, I think you found that they don't need that, that barrier. Um, mm -hmm. They simply need a, se a separate space that where they can pull the baby to, to them and then and to then them pull and them push back. the baby back. Yeah. yeah so yeah. having something like a sidecar crib arrangement seems to be um, a useful halfway house so long as the baby is put back in that uh, that place if there are some kind of you know reasons why they shouldn't sleep on the same surface. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, thinking, and I've heard this from a lot of people that, oh, I'm such a deep sleeper that I just, I couldn't, I would roll over onto my baby and I'm an extremely deep sleeper. And that of course never happened when I was, you know, sleeping with my babies. Um, can you talk about that? I mean, I think people worry about like, they're so exhausted from having a baby and they worry that that's going to affect it. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, people who are very deep sleepers or who, you know, are, are feel like they're very tired. I think uh, tiredness is a difficult one because you can become exhausted and then you have to kind of go through this kind of catch up sleep. And I think if you feel as though you're in that situation, you probably shouldn't sleep with your baby for that period while you're catching up. Um, you know, have somebody else take the baby for a while and let you kind of get over that. There are other people. I mean, this is it's something that we hear from from dads fairly regularly that um you know, he, dads feel like they're particularly deep sleepers. Your bomb could go off next to me and I wouldn't wake up, blah, 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 blah. And I think um, in those scenarios, you know, the, the, the mom is the one who knows whether her partner is responsive in the night and whether he would be aware of the baby. Um, and if he isn't, then he should either be sleeping somewhere else or mom should be positioned between him and the baby at all times. Um, because I think, yes, there are some people um, who probably are very deep sleepers and, and don't have any awareness of what's going on. Um, but it doesn't seem from all of the hundreds of hours of videos that we've done that that um, pertains to breastfeeding mums, not, certainly not the ones who've taken part in our studies. And I think that um, many, we, many people um, wonder when this kind of changes at all. Um, and uh, when it might be more safe to have the baby, say, between the parents. Um, I've heard the, the age of about four months. Um, can you talk about what changes at that point where it might be a little safer to be less aware of, you know, uh, having the baby perhaps on one side of the mother and the, the father on the other so, side? So, yeah, so, so in the first few couple of months, two or three months, babies aren't very good at defending their own airways, basically. Um, and so, you know, that you have to be vigilant about keeping covers away from the baby's face, making sure that its windpipe isn't kinked and all the rest of it, that its face isn't smushed up against something. Because its head is so heavy, if its face is smushed up against something, it's quite difficult for it to kind of be able to pull its head back. Um, but once it gets past the age of, of three to four months, then babies tend to have much more strength, um, certainly much more head strength. Uh, neck strength and they're able to you know 
move their parents away. We've, we have videos, you know, very clear videos of somebody kind of just rolling a little bit too close to a baby and the baby's arms and legs shooting out and the dad jumping off the bed. And, you know, it's like, um, so, so at, at a certain point, they get very competent at sort of keeping things away from themselves. But when they're very small, they obviously, they don't have that strength. They don't have that neuromuscular control to be able to do it. So um, in, in, in some traditional cultures where people sleep with their babies, they're on the floor. It's, you know, there's very little danger in the sleep environment. But of course, in our cultures, we have soft beds and mm -hmm. lots of pillows and that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit more about how to create a safe sleep environment if you have more of a Western sleep arrangement? So we talk about a clear, a clear safe space. For the baby to be in regard it doesn't matter where the baby's sleeping it needs a clear safe space so that means not having any any pillows any comforters any soft toys any cop bumpers anything kind of like around the baby um so keeping if the if the mom has a pillow uh, keeping the the mom's arm you know below the pillow so the pillow is is away from the baby's head um giving the baby its own covers, not pulling the parents uh, comforter up over the baby, that kind of thing. Um, and then thinking about gaps around the bed. So um, babies can, babies' bodies are quite small, but their heads are big. So, you know, if they slip down a gap, they end up just kind of getting their head stuck and yeah, they hang themselves. Um, so being aware of small gaps that babies can slide into um, is important. And that's more important, really, than the baby falling off the bed onto the floor because domestic beds are pretty low. They're not going to hurt themselves a huge amount if they fall off the bed, but they could, you know, seriously injure or kill themselves if they slip into a crack. So. So, yeah, and we, we often um, recommend that people just put the mattress straight put on the, the mattress floor. straight on the floor. Um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, and then, but some people feel like, well, they still have to worry about the baby falling off. And so they push it up against the wall. And we always say that's probably not the best thing because a crack can open up. And so, I mean, would you recommend just basically a mattress on the floor kind of pulled away from yeah. the walls? That kind of thing yeah. would be the yeah. safest. So, and of course, um, you know, we've also heard of people, babies getting tangled up in cords or, you know, from shades and things like that. That would be, of course, something they would be careful about or even yeah. a long, long hair from, uh, from someone. So there are, of course, other things as well that we've talked about, such as smoking and, you know, a parent being under the alcohol of a, or un under the influence of alcohol or a medication. Um, are there any other, you know, guidelines that people should know about and ways that they could still have their babies close? Well, even if they have some more of these risk factors, anything else we should mention? Well, I suppose the one risk factor that we haven't talked about is premature babies. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a tricky one because the, the data suggests that premature babies are at increased risk when bed sharing and, you know, given their extreme vulnerability of above and beyond normal newborns, that's understandable. But what is difficult um, to be able to help parents with is, is whether they ever grow out of that and whether there's a time that an ex-premature baby is sort of well-developed enough that it'll, it's able to sleep in the parent's bed with no additional risk. Um, and we don't know because what we, what we don't know about the risk associated with a premature baby 
is whether it's something to do with its its develop its brain development that affects its arousal from sleep or whether it's simply its inability to sort of defend its airways etc if something you know um, gets too close to it so for for babies who are born to mothers who smoked in pregnancy there is some evidence that they are less arousable than babies who haven't been exposed to smoke in pregnancy and it's one of the explanations for why those babies potentially more likely to die because they um they don't arouse at, at during moments of threat and we don't know whether premature babies have that same feature basically because of their prematurity so we can't say that that they definitely grow out of it because we don't know whether they do and there aren't enough premature babies who have died while bed sharing to be able to look at them as a separate category at different age groups in case control studies to say, oh, well, there was an excess of them up to this age, but past that age, there wasn't an excess of them. Therefore, it doesn't look like they're at increased risk. So a lot of it, a lot of the, the reason we can't answer these questions is because there aren't enough epidemiological data to break things down into the categories that would be helpful to, to answering those questions. I don't know whether any of that made sense. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I guess ultimately it comes down to a parent's judgment on whether they think their baby is strong enough, healthy enough. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, I often say that even if you are, have risk factors um, that, you know, arousal issues with a baby, it's very protective to have the baby in the same room, to right next to you, say, yes. in a side yes. crib, because you want that extra um movement of the parents mm -hmm. the breathing and so on to make mm -hmm. sure that the baby arouses so exactly that, yeah so i think that's one thing that people get a little confused about they think well the baby has to be away from me but yet um perhaps not right next to in the bed but close but, by but near enough that they can hear and um, hear the parents etc and yeah that keeps them in those lighter stages of sleep can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's in general something that I don't think people kind of understand about, about the immaturity of babies' breathing systems and why it's so important for them to have reminders to breathe, um, mm. so, so, to, so to speak, from you know, the, the parents' movements, et cetera. So one of the, so one of the SIDS, risks that, SIDS risks that has emerged from the epidemiology over the last decade or so is that babies, when they're placed in a room by themselves, are at increased risk. Um, and this seems to be related to um, the fact that that when they're by themselves, there isn't any um, stimulation to remind them, kind of keep them in lighter stages of sleep, remind them, if you like, uh, it's a shorthand um, to 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 breathe, um, to not to not go so deeply into sleep that they kind of like can't bring themselves back out of it, which is, you know, what people used to think cot death was, was that babies would just kind of become sleep so deeply they'd forget to breathe. Um, I don't think it's as simplistic as that, but there's, there's definitely a lot involved in the, the kind of the way in which the brainstem works. And, you know, some babies have, have deficiencies, arousal deficiencies that it is just helpful to have the noise of other people around them to keep them in those lighter stages of sleep. And of course, you know, you can't tell from looking at a baby if it's an arousal 
deficient baby in any way. So we have to give this advice to all families to keep the baby in the room to protect those ones for whom it makes a difference. Absolutely. So we sometimes also, um, you know, we talked a little bit about four months of, of, of around which time a baby's a little more able to move things away. And, and, and we hear sometimes people saying, well, you know, how long do I have to sleep, in, you know, cuddled up in one position exactly at night? Uh, how long do I have to not have any blankets, you know, up by my further than my waist? Do you have any ideas about, you know, when a baby's one year, uh, you know, six, you know, six months, nine months, anything like that, where, you know, the, the, uh, we can loosen the, the restrictions mm. a little bit. I don't know if there's any research on that or not. I, I don't think that anybody's looked specifically at that. There's a little kind of hint of that in the, the latest publication from uh, the Bristol group, which was published in 2014. Um, which found that um, in the absence of the known hazards, um, bed sharing what over the age of three months, the, the risk was in the, it wasn't a risk, it was in the direction of protection. Mm -hmm. So it suggested that bed sharing over the age of three months in the absence of known hazards protected babies against SIDS, but it didn't quite become significant. It was just in that direction. That's the only hint that, um, that anybody's published so far, I think, um, from an epidemiological point of view that suggests that as babies get older, um, whatever um, possible vulnerabilities they were, they start to disappear from, you know, above three months, four months or so. Um, and I, I think sometimes people are so concerned about those things that they overlook the more the, 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 the bigger hazard, which is, as you mentioned, the gaps and things about, you know, uh, entrapment um, so that, you know, they worry about a blanket getting over, a, a, you know, nine month old's head when in reality, the most important thing is to pay attention to if you have any place where the baby could get entrapped. Can you talk well, a little bit think, about that? I think the emphasis. So when when the SIDS rates were really high in the 80s and the 90s, the emphasis was on all of those things that affect those very small babies and, and increase their chance of, of dying for this, you know, unexplained sort of um, reason. But um, now, because the SIDS rates have declined so much, the accidental deaths in the slightly older babies are kind of receiving more attention because they're the ones, you know, after about four months, they're beginning to get enough muscle strength that they can squirm around the bed. They can change their position. They can, you know, by five months they're rolling and they can kind of roll themselves off the edge or into a gap. And then, you know, by the time they're nine months, they're crawling all over the place. And, you know, then your, your brain's got to switch into a different gear then. It's not what might, you know, um, cause my baby to sleep too deeply or um, et cetera. It's, what what trouble can my baby get themselves into? Um, so yeah, you're you're thinking about um, you're thinking about different issues at different time points in that baby's and and the the SIDS messaging has been very much focused kind of like in the early months. Um, Absolutely, and you know there is this whole alone back crib public health message that people it seems like are drilled into particularly in the US 
I don't know, I think it's changed a little bit in the UK and hopefully in other countries as well. I know Australia <clears throat> is another place where people are very, very much, you know, told that's how babies have to sleep. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how that, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier about how sometimes that drives people to couches, which is more hazardous. Can you also talk a little bit more about other uh, ways that it might disrupt things like breastfeeding um, if they're, people are told that that's how they have to sleep with their babies? Um, yes, I think the, the um, guidance in the States is probably more rigid now than it is in the UK. So um, a lot of that stuff has kind of uh, softened. We take what is called a risk minimization approach rather than a risk elimination approach. So, you know, in the States, it's, it's drilling into people's brains that you don't do certain things. Whereas in the UK, it's we would like to help them minimize the chance of doing these things but we recognize that in some circumstances they happen and they need to know how to make that as safe as possible um, so yes i mean with with breastfeeding the the idea that one one of the things that that is misinterpreted i suppose about the alone bit of the abc is that people think that that means alone in a separate room um, and of course that undermines breastfeeding because parents don't um, they aren't aware of the baby's cues to feed until the baby's kind of completely worked worked up and screaming um, they're not responding they might be more deeply asleep and they're not responding to to go and feed the baby as frequently as etc the baby just doesn't have that um, natural experience of being able to, to latch on whenever it wants to. Mums don't have that physiological kind of feedback loop to maintain their milk supply. Um, so, you know, it, it all becomes this kind of downward spiral after a while um, when babies sleep in separate rooms. Um, so that's an issue. And then parents also get quite anxious about the baby's need to be in kind of like physical contact with the parents during the daytime and you know this you know on on your prone on your chest is where babies most like to sleep in the in the early months um, and because being put on their back has become such a huge um, message they're afraid to allow them to sleep on their chests even though if you're awake and observing the baby and making sure that its airways open etc it's fine it's the issue is, is, well, there's two issues. One is the baby being completely prone on a flat surface rather than prone on the incline. And the other is if you're asleep in that position and then that's the baby sliding off into some kind of hazardous location. Yeah, and that's one thing, another thing I wanted to ask you about because we do have a lot of parents that talk about how their babies you know, sleep on their chest, which is of course very normal. In fact, I think I talked to another anthropologist who said that babies never sleep generally, in many cases during the day, they never sleep lying down. They're always mm -hmm. on a person sleeping somebody. vertically. Yeah. Yes. And, um, but, um, you know, I know that there are parents that will, you know, be fine sleeping, you know, nap time, they'll just relax with the baby and, and uh, let the baby contact nap on their chest. But sometimes they'll, they'll say, well, this baby won't sleep, you know, lying down even at night. Um, is there, so are, are there ways to make it as safe as possible if, you know, that's really the only way that a parent can get any sleep is to have the baby on their chest? 
there is nothing researched about how to make it as safe as possible. Nobody has sort of randomly assigned some people to do it one way and some people to do it another and worked out which was the safest way. There's only really the sort of common sense um, suggestions and things that, that parents have figured out that work for them. Um, but we have to be careful um, kind of advising parents that maybe they could do this and maybe they could do that because every family is different and unless we know sort of you know all of the ins and outs of somebody's life and and what might be happening in that family we don't know whether it's safe um so it's got to be the parents decision uh, you know in my book they're the only ones who know whether they can make that a safe a safe thing for them to do absolutely um, yeah it's it's a really difficult one because it's you know it's most people experience that that phase where the baby won't go to sleep unless it's lying on you and then somehow you've got to get some sleep so you know you, the only thing you can really do is tag team at that point um, right. you know and, and sleep in shifts and let the right. other person but you need a partner if you've not got a partner what do you do right right yeah. exactly yeah so, I mean sometimes you know I, I like what you say about parents have to use their own common sense because i i often say you know if, if this is something that is, is going to happen as you say you teach people to minimize risks and you know if this is going to happen anyway it's not going to do any good to say well you have to sleep in the cuddle curl you know with the baby on their back next to you uh, you might say well think about ways to make it safest you know leaning back on pillows but keeping the pillows away from anywhere the baby could slip perhaps just putting them under your elbows you know, a very firm bed, and then you can be lying back. And if the baby does slip, you know, they hopefully there'll be nothing in their environment where they could mm -hmm. be entrapped. So um, I do yeah. think that's really important to, to tell parents that, you know, they have the power to really do what needs to do to be to protect their baby. So yeah, I mean, all of this is is trade offs, isn't it? And um, parents, all parents have got a different kind of like trade off threshold as to what they're willing to to accept or not accept. So it's it's about giving them the tools to be able to 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 try and make that as safe as they possibly can. Um, Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about how you know other perhaps um, you know non traditional cultures or um, indigenous um, peoples uh, sleep with their babies and maybe any other ideas about why that has we have strayed so far from that biological norm in our in our Western societies. Um, well, I'm not um, I'm not a social anthropologist, so I've not done ethnographies of um, other societies, so I can only go by what I've read and what other people tell me. Um, so, you know, I think we've got a very unusual view of sleep in general in Western society in that, you know, we we believe that good sleep involves um, an unbroken eight hours of, you know, deep restorative sleep, etc. Um, and this is, this is, again, it's a product of the Industrial Revolution, if you like. It's, you know, when people were, were working so many long, hard physical hours that they needed to sleep in that way in order to, um, in order to be able to, 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 to recover from the, the kind of the, the their economic lives if you like um 
whereas if we look at other cultures that are not industrialized, the sort of um, the sleeping patterns are not as intense as Western sleeping patterns are. So people are more likely to to wake in the night, to to change sleeping places or whatever. Um, and there's not this um, kind of drive to to have this, you know, to it's it's like the sleep of the dead, and people talk about, you know, the you know the little the little death. Um, we in in other societies, people don't sleep in that sort of a way, um, and I think you know many of the things that then relate to what happens when we sleep with our babies, kind of comes out from that because we live in these hermetically sealed houses we block out all the light we block out all the noise we make it as comfortable as possible we regulate the temperature you know and that that's a very artificial sleeping environment in in you know most parts of the world sleep happens in a noisy environment you know with with light and uh, you know um temperature fluctuations and you know it's not it, it's probably a much more uncomfortable experience, but people are used to sleeping like that. Um, so I think I think our whole sort of cultural perception of what sleep entails has become quite narrow and and fixed, um, and on the idea of comfort and silence and all of this. Um, I think you know. Um, there are some anthropologists who have written about this, um, or sociologists as well, um, which you know I think there's some 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 very interesting insights in some of those books, and also the historical sort of um, research about how people slept, you know, in the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, which was again quite quite different to how we sleep now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the waking up in the middle of the night to, you know, pray or, you know, tend the fire, things like that. And people, you know, wonder why sometimes babies are awake for an hour or two in the middle of the night. And it could be just that's the normal sleep pattern of, of human beings. Um, yeah, I really like that you brought up about the uh, environment being, you know, noisy or, you know, not, you know, perfectly quiet and still because there are so many folks that feel like they have to have their baby take a nap, you know, very quiet room. And actually, you know, it's much healthier in many ways in terms of their arousal for them to just be wherever the family is. Mm -hmm. They can, you know, if, if they're not trained to be in a quiet, dark room, they can sleep pretty much anywhere. And that's how babies exactly. sleep around exactly. the world. Yeah, so. I, I always, when parents ask about that, I always say, let your baby sleep in, in the daylight don't close the curtains, you know, it helps with its circadian cycle that it, you know, it doesn't have this mini nighttime sleep in the middle of the day where it thinks it's suddenly dark and silent again, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it helps it to build up sleep pressure as well towards the end of the day so that when it does fall asleep at night, it might sleep for a little bit longer than it would if it was having enormous naps in the middle of the day. Right, absolutely. And I, I also wonder sometimes about people, you know, wake, having this expectation of having that long, you know, eight hour per, uninterrupted period of sleep. And um, sometimes I also wonder, is it because we're, we're people are so uh, obsessed with tracking their sleep with these sleep trackers with looking at the clock and being aware of how many times they wake up and 
when I tell people, and I did this when I had young children too, I say, just don't look at the clock. Just Mm -hmm. don't pay attention to anything. People feel so much more rested in the mornings. Um, It just seems like there's such an obsession with getting your baby sleeping a certain way. And I mean, it just seems like that makes people very anxious. Is that your, is is that your um, experience? And and what do you say to people to to help them relax a little bit about baby sleep? I think it's hard to tell people not to be um, obsessed with it when their culture drives them to, but I mean, it's about, a lot of it is about, um, accepting that you're going to feel anxious about these things but trying not to kind of have them in the forefront of your brain all of the time to try you know to try to figure out ways to just I mean people always say let them go but it's it's very hard to let things like that go I think you I think you know it's it's probably more about recognizing what you're obsessing about questioning why and just sort of trying to allow it to be there and not control you um you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, I think it's probably a difficult thing to master when you're in the, in the middle of it. Um, it's easier to kind of like look back um, afterwards and say, why was I so, you know, why was I so obsessed with that? Why was I so anxious about that? Um, but, you know, it does help if people remind us in the moment that, um there's a huge range of normal in terms of baby's sleep and comparing your baby with your friend's baby or your sister's baby is not helpful because, um, you know, with that, that huge normal uh, variation, they could be on opposite ends of the spectrum and there's nothing wrong with either baby. They're just different, different phenotypes of sleep. Um, yeah, and the latest so, is, is all of these apps that say the mm, average amount of sleep. And yes, I and the average is, you know, the average is the mean of a huge range and everybody doesn't sit right on the average. And I think just reminding people of that can help because, yeah, they get very anxious about whether their baby's normal. Everybody does. Um, but, but a normal baby is not an average baby. I think that's <laughs> the thing to remember. Absolutely. So... Um, your website, um, the Baby Sleep Information Source, is just a fabulous, wonderful resource for parents. Can you discuss a little bit of what um, parents will find there if uh, they yep. they log in? Okay, yeah. So we um, we we um, invented the website to respond to to a need that we had definitely experienced in the UK, which was um, that that mums of primarily breastfed babies didn't have any um, information about what would be normal for their baby because the vast majority of research when we started that website had been done only on formula fed babies and so the characteristics of sleep the um, you know the, the the ages of different things happening the fact that you know the whole baby should be sleeping through the night from three months of age you know is very much to do with you should be supplementing your baby with formula at night now so that you can get a good night's rest and all the rest of it and of course that didn't apply to mums who wanted to exclusively breastfeed for the first six months and whose babies were continuing to feed in the night etc so we decided that it would be um we would like to amass as much information as possible about normal infant sleep, biologically normal infant sleep, particularly as it applied to breastfed babies and breastfeeding moms and babies. 
Um, so that's really that was really the impetus for starting the website. Um, and it's sort of grown since then. So we started off by talking about how babies sleep and where babies sleep and why breastfed babies might be more likely to be in bed with their parents and what parents need to think about and all of those kinds of things. Um, and it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's grown into various different areas. So we've got a big section now on SIDS and we've got some information on, on parents' um, sleep disruption and its effects on parents' mental health. And, you know, quite as we've gotten interested in more and more subjects and done more and more research, we've sort of added to the information that's on the website. So it's probably a never ending project. Um, <laughs> I thought when we first started it, people laugh at me now, as it so obviously wasn't true. But I thought when we first started it, that because I was constantly getting bombarded with emails from people who wanted to know what does the research say on this? And what does you know, what is the evidence base for that? I thought, if I just write it all down and put it on the web, I can just say, oh, go and look at that, go and look at that, go and look at that. But of course, all I did was create more questions. So people read what, you know, it's like, well, this is what the research says. And then they come back and they go, but what about? And I'm like, but it's not on there because there's no research about it. <laughs> so I'm still answering as many emails as I ever did. They've just shifted slightly in terms of into the more peripheral questions rather than the core questions. But <laughs> Absolutely. I still think it's just so wonderful to be able to go and, and read about, you know, co-bedding twins and how to make your sleep environment as safe as possible. I just, I think it's fantastic. Even if it doesn't answer all the questions, I think it, it answers a lot. And I really appreciate your keeping that source up to date. It's fantastic. Um, so just to wrap up a little bit, is there anything that, you know, we haven't talked about today that you want to add, or is there anything you would like to tell new parents today to help them be a little more comfortable with their baby sleep? Oh, what would I like to tell new parents? Um, I, I would I would encourage anybody with a new baby today to try to go with the flow. I think this is a I think this is an old adage actually, not a new one, but you know, the baby hasn't read all of the self-help books. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They just do what they do. And I I'm a strong believer in just following their lead and letting them tell you what they need so you know and their needs will change their sleep isn't linear doesn't progress in a linear way they don't start to consolidate their sleep into you know a couple of sleep cycles and then it gets more and it gets more and it gets more until you've ultimately got a baby who's sleeping eight hours at night it's like a roller coaster and be prepared for it to be like a roller coaster if you know it's going to be like a roller coaster when it all goes haywire you're not surprised by it and you're not made anxious by it so i think you know um realistic expectations are one of the the most useful things that we can give to prospective parents absolutely i i i totally agree and i i often try to say to new parents you know, your, your child isn't going to remember, you know, how many hours of sleep they got or what their nap schedule was or anything like that. They're just going to remember the connection that they had with you. So if you can kind of relax and go with the flow, it's going to make things easier for all of you. So mm -hmm. 
Helen Ball, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, again, my guest is uh, Professor Helen Ball. She's the director of the Durham Infancy and Sleep Center in the UK. And uh, her um, website, which is full of incredible information, is the Baby Information Sleep Source basis. Um, what is the uh, URL for that, Helen? www.basisonline.org.uk. Wonderful. And we'll put that in the show notes as well as any other information you think we should we should include. So thank you again. It's just been such a pleasure and you've, you're one of my heroes. So I really oh, appreciate it. Well, it's been a lovely chat. Thanks for inviting me on. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.